following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Well, thanks, Scott, for filling in last week. Um, I had someone ask me this week if I'm going to ruin Christmas again like Scott did. I said, no, um, I'll try to rebuild the shattered ruins of your Christmas cards. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Thank you, Scott. That's good information. We're going to talk about the visit of the Magi this morning, and we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, hey, okay, cool, we're ready to go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and depending on your translation, you may read that he was terrified or stirred or agitated or troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. I think this is a little phrase that we can often overlook. Of course Herod is disturbed. He's the king, and suddenly you've got these astrologers or magicians, whatever the term magi meant. These were men considered wise, coming from the east, and the east represents a place where most of Rome's enemies came from. If you read Roman history, the east was just a mess for them. They were great warriors. Rome feared the east, if they feared anywhere. And here you have these magi coming and saying, hey, we know there's a Jewish king here. So Herod is, of course, troubled. But it also says all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And it strikes me that one of the things that's hard for us to understand is the conflict or the emotions that would go with this idea that a new king is coming. If you lived at that time, odds are pretty good that you weren't indifferent to kings. We're kind of indifferent. We hear that the Queen of England or royalty somewhere else in the world did something. We're like, eh, whatever. We don't have kings in this country. But if you lived at a time where you lived in kingdoms with kings, you probably had one of two primary emotions if a new king was coming. That was either fear or elation. Because you didn't quite know what you were getting. Some of the kings were horrible. I mean, Herod's a great example here. He was just a mess. He killed people. We've talked about this previous Christmases. We've talked about Herod killing people at Christmas. Uh, Herod was a monster. Now, if you have a new king coming, that, you might be really excited. But on the other hand, you don't know if that new king might be worse. And here they go, okay, We've seen that there's this sign that the king of the Jews is here, a new king is coming. All of Jerusalem is disturbed. They're agitated, they're stirred up, they're troubled. As bad as life was under Herod, they weren't quite sure what life might be like under a new king. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So there's some Old Testament, Old Testament connections going on here again. For one, in Second Samuel, I believe it is, uh, David is called a shepherd and a ruler. And we've been talking for the last month now about all the ways in which the Gospels are pointing out that Jesus is a descendant of both David and Abraham. He's a priest and a king. He is in this line. Here you see it again. 
David was referred to as a shepherd and a ruler. And you see here that the Sanhedrin, they quote this, uh, there's a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. But this is also a direct quote from the book of Micah. And the book of Micah, the prophets have been telling God's people, uh, you're in trouble. You've walked away from God. You've rebelled against him. Judgment is coming. And the prophets and the leaders are rebuked from actually being the ones who led the people down this path. But then in Micah chapter 5, you get this promise that, in this case, the Messiah is coming. There is a plan for restoration and redemption, and that's what the Sanhedrin is quoting here when Herod asked them. That Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. That's not going to happen. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, or frankincense, and myrrh, something worth noting. These were typical gifts for kings in that time in history. These weren't pulled out of thin air. Now, because Jesus is who he is, there's some implications of the things like myrrh as an embalming fluid. But if you look in the historical records, there are plenty of accounts of kings being given gold and frankincense and myrrh because they were kings. You even have an account of one king making an offering to the god Apollo in which he offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh because Apollo was a god. And so here you see these magi bringing gifts that were commonly given to kings and to gods. And they give this to Jesus. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, we're going to talk about poetry for a little bit. And all God's people said, yay! All right, so when I was in college and studying English, I was introduced to a poet named T.S. Eliot. And he's probably most famous for a poem called The Wasteland. It's the kind of poem that only people who like poetry like, and even people who like poetry often don't like this poem. Uh, you'll see behind me different images that have been used on different book covers to try to capture the essence of what T.S. Eliot was writing about. He was writing about the collapse of civilization or perhaps the fact that civilization has already collapsed. And this poem is disjointed. It rambles. Uh, there's so many obscure references that if you ever have a desire to read this poem, all the footnotes explaining what he's saying is probably three times as long as the actual poem. I mean, it's just a kind of poem that you wade through. But I'm going to make you wade through just a little bit of it this morning. And I actually have a point with this, so stick with me. The last stanza of this poem, uh, you'll see on the screen, and I'm not going to read every single line on the left, partly because I don't know how to pronounce all the words, but it's the kind of poem where as he summarizes uh, what he is thinking about the world, and just know that at the time that this poem is considered kind of iconic in that it captures a feeling about the world that many people experienced at this time. 
He says, I sat upon the shore fishing with an arid plain behind me, and now I'm going to jump to the right side of your screen just to kind of give you an idea of what he's trying to communicate with each of these lines. First, uh, he basically says, how do I prepare for my own death? Shall I at least set my lands in order? That's a quote from Isaiah 38, by the way. How do I prepare for my own death? The reality is we ruin everything, which is why London Bridge is falling down. He wonders in some other language, uh, I've gone through all these fires in my life, all these hardships. Can they possibly refine me and bring something good? At the next line, he wonders, will I be able to sing again? Will I ever have reason to celebrate and just kind of rejoice and break into song? At the next line, he wonders, can anything be reborn? All these things that have fallen apart that exist in this wasteland, is there hope for life? Then he says, these fragments I have shored against my ruins. I don't know if that's the fragments of the whole poem. Nobody's quite sure what he's referring to here. But the reality is his life is in ruins, and he's trying to build something up that will strengthen him, and all he has is fragments, and it's not going well. And the next line suggests a little bit of hope in him. I can fix this. And the next line says, "Uh, yeah, never mind. That's madness to think I could fix this. And the last two lines of his poem, he quotes from the Hindu scriptures first, and the three words there are for giving, for compassion, and for control. And then he finishes with peace, peace, peace. And he says, actually, when he wrote that last line, he was thinking of the biblical reference to the peace that passes understanding. And it's clear he doesn't have these things. These are fragments These are things he sees pieces of in his life, and the world and his life is in ruins, and he's trying desperately to put something in place that will give him stability and a hope and a future, and he's got nothing, just fragments of these things. In the end, he lives in a wasteland. It's not a happy poem. Are we picking up on this? It's a very depressing poem, but one that is still studied because, I think this was written around World War II, um, it, it reflected a cultural feeling that everything was following, falling apart, and Eliot felt this very deeply. About three years later, he writes a poem called The Hollow Men. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, because this is an English class, but I want to give you just some excerpts of it. Ba- basically, it's the start and the finish. And this one is even more depressing, perhaps, in the wasteland. He says, we are the hollow men, We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpieces filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind and dry grass or rats' feet over broken glass in a dry cellar. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom, they remember us, if at all, not as lost violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. And then he concludes with four perhaps his most famous lines. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. And this is the, the poignant emptiness and loneliness and despair of T.S. Eliot coming out. And then... T.S. Eliot became a Christian. He converted into the Anglican Church in England. And two years later, he wrote a poem called The Journey of the Magi. Now you know why I put you through those first two. Eliot wrote this when he came home from church one day. And this is a quote according to Eliot. I had been thinking about it in church. And when I got home, I opened a half bottle of Booth's gin 
poured myself a drink, and began to write. By lunchtime, the poem, the half bottle of gin, were both finished. I'm not suggesting that's the best way to write a poem or to follow up a church service. Uh, but nonetheless, think of it in this context. Here, here's Eliot, who in some ways was perhaps the voice of his generation about despair and loneliness and seeing what life was like in a broken world, and he becomes a Christian. He becomes saved. But I, I think, and as we are actually are going to read this one, you're going to see that Eliot was still in this process, and he was recognizing that going from the life he lived to the life in the kingdom that Jesus offered was a traumatic experience. Good and beautiful and true and hopeful and all those things, but there was some upheaval and some unsettledness to this journey from the kingdom he was in into the kingdom of Christ. So he writes a poem called The Journey of the Magi, and here it is. And now he's speaking first person as if he's one of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey. That's such a long journey. The way's deep and the weather's sharp. It was the very dead of winter. And the camels, galled, sore-footed, refractory or stubborn, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Uh, regretted just means we longed for, we remembered. Then the camel men, cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. I wonder how much of that is Eliot kind of giving voice to his transition into becoming a follower of Jesus, wondering, is this the right thing? Is this folly? This is hard. I'm leaving these things that I've known all my life and moving into something new. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation with a running stream and water mills beating the darkness. And now he's going to give a bunch of biblical allusions as he's describing the Magi coming down toward Bethlehem. And three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow, and we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, and six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. So each line there is just kind of a reference to different images or situations in the life of Jesus. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place that is the place where Jesus was. And it was, you might say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Is that a weird way to write that? That's how he typeset it. I think he wants you to stop because you tend to read it and go, I would do it again, but set down. This set down. Th- that doesn't make sense. Um, set down this. set like It's a weird way to read it, so you have to stop and you note, set down this. This is the whole point of what he's saying. We were led all that way. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. Uh, for Eliot, 
I'm assuming this is a reference to he was convinced of the truth of Christianity, that Jesus was real. There was a birth. We have evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. But this birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death, which sounds like a depressing ending, but I'm going to argue that it's not. What I like about this poem is that I think Eliot has captured how unsettling the birth of Jesus was. All of Jerusalem was disturbed. Not just Herod. Everybody was unsettled when Jesus came to earth. And I think it's because this is a new king bringing in a new kingdom. And when we take upon ourselves a new king and we live in a new kingdom, there is going to be upheaval. We've lived in this one kind of kingdom all our lives. We know this king. We know what life is like. Even if it's full of depression and despair and hurt and shame and all these things, we know it. It's what's familiar to us. But now we have this new king, and this king's bringing a new kingdom. This is, this is a revolution, right? The birth of Jesus is an act of war. It's a declaration of war. Christmas can feel light and fuzzy and fluffy. Jesus is here. It's a little baby. That's true. But in that context, this was so much more than this. A king was born, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed, and Herod was terrified. Because it wasn't just a baby that was born. This was changing everything. It's an act of war, of spiritual war. I mean, Jesus had to clarify later to his followers, I didn't come here to build an earthly kingdom. Put down your swords. It's not that kind of war. But there's a spiritual war that will now happen. And I think what Eliot captures in this poem is something Eliot knew and now put into the minds of the Magi and that this was, this was going to cost them their allegiance to their earthly kingdom. Going back home now, they were going to feel like strangers in a strange land, which is how the Bible describes how we should be feeling. They're now surrounded by alien people. Isn't that odd? When they left, it was their people. But they found a new king, and now when they go back, they're an alien people. Even though they know them, something is different. And now they're clutching their alien gods. Wait, a couple months before, those were your gods. Those were the things you turned to for comfort and for hope and for peace. And now you've met the new king. And nothing is the same. Now you're not at home in your family, you're not at home in your community, you're not at home in your country. Those gods you used to follow, you now recognize that they aren't yours. There's a new dispensation, there's a new revelation. And to really appreciate it, there must be another death. I mean, this is what the Bible calls us to over and over again, right? We must die so that we can live. Uh, now I'm jumping way ahead in my notes. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. Uh, it's not entirely clear what Eliot himself was trying to say about this being another death. Some people think that the Magi go back 
and now they feel so alienated, they just want to die. Some people think they go back and their hearts are so broken for their old culture that they, they just have this longing for this old culture to die and for this new kingdom of God to be ushered in. I mean, I don't, I don't know. What I suspect, based on the context in which Elliot wrote this, he's coming home from church. The first four lines of this poem are from a sermon from the 1600s by an English preacher. He's a new Christian. I suspect Elliot is recognizing the cost of following Christ. We often use the phrase that wise men still seek him when we refer to the Magi. I think that's true. Wise people follow the signs to Jesus. They recognize the real birth and the reality of it. But now some things are going to die. Now, this is a happy story in the ending. But you've got to allow for some chapters in the midst of the story where death is part of the story. The old way of life dies. The allegiance to other kingdoms and alien gods dies. It'll cost you something to follow Jesus because you go back into the old situations where you used to feel at home, and now it's not home. Now it's strange and it's clunky because these are not my gods. And in a deeply spiritual sense, these are not my people. And that, friends, is not an easy thing to do. Today, some of the stories where I hear things like this happening most um, clearly are people who grow up in Muslim cultures and who are Muslim and convert to Christianity. If you do that, you are putting behind an entire way of life not just a way you think. It is huge, huge in ways I think we cannot comprehend to make that kind of shift in that kind of culture. You you die. You might actually die in a physical sense with that kind of commitment. But you still die. You put the old self to death, says the Bible, and there are huge implications This is an upheaval of kingdoms. They're caught between two worlds. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. All right, here come the magi. I've got the kingdom from back home, but I found a new king. I cannot serve two kings. I cannot live in two kingdoms comfortably. My citizenship will go to one. My allegiance will go to one. I must die to the other one in all the ways that truly matter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is part of the message of Christmas. Jesus came to die. God incarnates. God in the flesh, Jesus, the God-man, the perfect blend of full humanity and full divinity, Why did he come to earth to die? That's his purpose. That was his focus. That was his goal. Was to come to earth and to die. So the Christmas story is deeply sorrowful from the very beginning. Now there's a popular song, Mary Did You Know? I won't sing it. I don't know what all Mary knew from the very beginning. I mean, 
It's clear she knew that God did something supernatural in her and that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But what that meant, I I don't know what Mary knew. I don't know what it must have been like when she realized I had a son who was born to die. And not just everybody dies, but that's, this is why he's here. He's here to give his life. And for us, Right? And we're going to get to the happy part of this because Christmas is, of course, good news. Because his death is not the end, right? His resurrection is a thing that is the stamp of his power and the fact that he is God and that out of death comes life. But it just, it's been striking me this week that Christmas, um, there's a poignancy and a deep sadness to Christian, to Christmas because it is intertwined with death in a way where it cannot be separated. And it's got me thinking about the implications for us. Because this seems like an odd Christmas focus, right? Let's talk about Jesus' death on Christmas. But we're celebrating love today for Advent. And greater love has no one than this, that they do what? Lay down their life. We can't talk about the love of Christmas without talking about what it cost Jesus to love us. For the moment he was born, his love was going to be fulfilled in his death. It cost Jesus a crucifixion to show his love to us. And as I think about the implications, what will it cost us to return that love to Jesus? And it's going to cost us a death. So Jesus warned us that to follow him was to take up a cross. Romans 6 tells us we're baptized into Jesus' death. Paul says, I die daily. He writes in Galatians, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. Romans 8, we put to death the deeds of the body. This is an inseparable inseparable part of being a follower of Christ. And Christmas has to remind us of this. I mean, we celebrate. I'm going to get to the celebratory thing just in a minute. I don't want to ignore this, but we have to recognize the cost of the celebration, the cost of the love, the cost to Jesus of giving us this time of celebration. He gave his life. Now, how do we celebrate in the fullness in Christmas season? How do we respond? Um, Let me think of how to phrase this. If God gave us love that now comes into us and then flows out to others and back to him, what does it look like when it flows back out? It's going to involve death. We die to sin. We die daily. We crucify the flesh. We put to death the deeds of the body. We take up a cross. This is the celebration of Christmas. This is the ultimate way that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Does this sound odd? We celebrate his birth through our death? Because that's the cost of his love to us, and that's the costliness of the love I'm going to give back to him. We celebrate Christmas by dying to ourselves. But then Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet what? And yet I live. So this death is only only part of it. 
uh, because you get transformation that comes with this. On the other side of death is life. So I've been thinking about this. I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. I think Christians might be the only people in the world who have good reason to genuinely say, uh, death ought to hold no fear for me. Every kind of death. Because I know as a follower of Christ, on the other side of death is life. Life more abundant in this world and the next. So yeah, I I get it. I'm not excited about uh, the idea of physical death. But I know what awaits me on the other side. And I... I am trusting that God, as that moment arrives and when I'm there, offers, well, his presence is already with me, but offers me something in those moments that remind me of the hopefulness that awaits on the other side because my death will simply lead me to a greater life, the life I have always longed for, right? my physical death. But isn't this true of our spiritual death also? We long to die. Like like Elliot has one of the magi say, we long or I should be glad of another death. Shouldn't I as a Christian be glad and long for all those times in my life where God bids me come and die? What do I have to lose? What waits me on the other side of death is life. I'm going to have to choose a kingdom, right? I'm going to be caught in this tension of what the earth offers and what my sinfulness and what my flesh draws me to and what Jesus offers. And we don't travel to a house and see Jesus, but we have the story. This is our confrontational moment. You get to choose a kingdom. You got to choose a king. And you're going to die to something when you choose a kingdom. And I was thinking of this idea of being glad of another death that I think on this side of heaven, I'm always going to live in this tension that I'm going to wrestle with, but this is the life that I know. I kind of like my sin and my temptation. Uh, I don't know if I want to give up everything. I don't know if I want to fully surrender. There's something about this old kingdom that still feels a little compelling. I mean, it looks really cool on TV. People look like they're having a lot of fun. And now I've got Jesus over here saying, why don't you take up a cross, buddy? Why don't you follow me and die? Oh. Okay, but right, that's not the answer. What The reason I do that is because what's on the other side is life. I'm going to die over here too, but it won't be a resurrection into life. The wages of sin is death, Period. Following Jesus, taking him across his death, not period. Now you get life. So why would I be reluctant to die to lust? Dear God, why would I cling to that? If I die to that, the life on the other side is purity. Why wouldn't I die to selfishness? And selfishness is just rotten. It saps our energy. It makes us treat other people poorly. We're never happy. Why wouldn't I die to that? Why wouldn't I give that up? 
Why wouldn't I lay that on the altar? Paul says, we offer, I believe it's Paul, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. The Bible says we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Why wouldn't I climb up on that altar and go through that sacrifice? Because Jesus offers me on their side is selflessness. That's life. Why wouldn't I die to anger and bitterness? If you've ever had anger and bitterness in your life, you know the control that it has on you. You know what a jerk it makes you. And it's not just the impact on other people. It, it's your view of God. Why would I keep a hold of that? Why wouldn't I die to that and rise into forgiveness and joy? Why wouldn't I die to judgmentalism? Why wouldn't I die to pride? Why wouldn't I die to pride? Pride feels really good till you can't sustain it, which is always. It always fails. You're never good enough for yourself if pride's an issue. Why wouldn't I give up pride and surrender and arise to new life and servanthood and humility? Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 reads, Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So put off your old nature is die to self, surrender to Christ, and be raised in renewed minds, a new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness simply has to do with now you can walk in the path that is right. Holiness has to do with now you're called out and separate. You're God's. He's transforming you into his image. How do I not long for that more than I do? How do I possibly long to stay in this old kingdom with alien gods and alien people? What is it about that that would possibly draw me? Why would I like lust and selfishness and anger and bitterness and judgment and pride? Why would I stay here? Because it's hard. Because because you're going to have to die to move out of it. You have to give stuff up. You've got to be humble. You have to repent to God and to others. You might have to put structure and boundaries in your life. You might need accountability so people are strong when you're weak. You're going to need to be praying and, and begging for God's Holy Spirit to continue to do this cleansing work in your life. You're going to have to spend time in the Word instead of on your phone learning about what it is that that God wants to feed me with with His truth. It's going to be reorganization of everything. It is a new king and a new kingdom. And it looks hard because we see i got to die to get there. But, oh, the life on the other side. A life on the other side. What I, what I want to offer this morning um, as we close is for one, if you need to surrender to Christ for the first time to make him the king of your life, or if you're a follower of Jesus and you're recognizing, man, I love this old kingdom still, I'm having a hard time dying and moving into the new life in this new kingdom, can, can I just... 
encourage you, when we dismiss, you can come forward and, and pray. I'll be here. Julie will be here. We'll be happy to pray with you. You could turn to somebody next to you and go, I, I need, um, I need you to pray with me. I'm not in the right kingdom and I am not following the king like I should. There's a prayer room right over there. You could grab somebody by the arm and say, I I need you to pray with me and start today to begin this process of death in Christ and arising to life in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Is there a better time than Christmas? Maybe Easter, Christmas and Easter? I mean, every day is good, but listen, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, this is the celebration. This is what Jesus wants from you as your worshipful celebration and response to him. Not just dressing up pretty and showing up tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Not just wearing your nice stuff. Not being extra friendly to people. Not just waving at someone when they cut you off in traffic tomorrow. I mean, that's fine. That's not what Jesus is asking from you in the deepest sense of the word to celebrate his birth. He needs your life. He needs your life. And then, if you want to come to Message Plus afterwards, I would love for it to be a time where we can talk, whoever's there, about what this has looked like in your life. What does it look like for God to bring you from death to life? Or maybe you just need to hear other people's stories because you you feel stuck in this old kingdom and you need to know that there's hope. Then you just come sit in there and listen. But I'm looking for testimonies this morning. If you come to Message Plus, I mean, I won't make you. I might make you. I want to hear. Uh, I want to hear about this because someone in that room is going to need to hear your story about how Jesus, because of his death, Life and his death and his resurrection has given you life. This is Christmas. This is Christmas. Lord, I'm grateful for the gift of Jesus. Um, I'll never have enough words uh, about the profound nature of the word become flesh of Jesus' life, of his death, of his resurrection, the forgiveness for our sins, the hope of glory. And God, I pray this Christmas season is one of the deepest kind of rejoicing. That is the surrendering of our lives to you, the deepest kind of worship and celebration that is giving our lives back to you. And may this be more than just our internal journey. Lord, uh, let this transformation and Christ's love flow from us to those around us so that your love and your reality is seen through our words, our deeds, our very presence, that you increase even as we decrease. I pray that it flows into the community that we as individuals and as a church are a city on a hill for you where you are clearly the light that is shining, that has broken through into our darkness. It radiates as the hope of the world. Oh, Lord, let Christmas be, in the deepest sense, the celebration of Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen.
This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.